and welcome to a new Bunker Daily. I'm Roz Taylor. Today we've reached peak bunker because we're going to be talking to someone who's just written a book about actual bunkers and the people who intend to hide out in them come the apocalypse. Bradley Garrett is a social geographer at University College Dublin and the author of Bunker, Building for the End Times, just published by Penguin. And he's joining me for some apologies, bunker on bunker action. Welcome to the bunker, Bradley. It's not the first time someone said that to you, is it? (laughs) <laughs> Ross, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. Um, no, I've I've seen a lot of bunkers over the past couple of years. You, um, a lot of them are surprisingly difficult to access. You know, people uh, don't tend to want to reveal the location of their bunkers. So I even in one case was um, sort of smuggled in by the back of a van and only shown the bunker uh, when the back doors were opened. You started out as an archaeologist before you moved to London in 2008, and then you began seeking out places that were off limits and exploring and photographing them. Why did you start that strange occupation? What was the attraction? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm an ethnographer by trade, so I um, tend to get fascinated by um, subcultures, interesting subcultures that have a have a story to tell. I was working in archaeology, and I was becoming a little bit uncomfortable with my role as an expert, you know, my, my role in interpreting other people's culture. And so when I, when I thought about doing a, a PhD at Royal Holloway, University of London, um, I was interested in finding people who were kind of doing archaeology on their own terms, you know, people who were doing kind of amateur archaeology. Uh, I found this, this group of people called urban explorers that were sneaking into abandoned buildings and uh, creating these incredible um, photographic records of the passage of time in these abandoned places. And I started uh, hanging out with them to, as, as part of my PhD research project. And um, that sort of led to uh, sneaking into these abandoned buildings, led to sneaking into uh, skyscrapers, construction sites, and then also subterranean spaces like um, the abandoned stations in the tube. And there, it was a, it was a great project, but um, there was always something lingering from that project. It was it was that we kept running into these bunkers underneath the city. I mean, London is just absolutely riven with bunkers from World War II and the Cold War. And uh, I was kind of haunted by this idea of of you know what would become of them. Uh, and I found out a few years later when when the UK government uh, attempted to sell this secret city called Burlington under Wiltshire. And one of the buyers, prospective buyers, was uh, a doomsday prepper, this guy, Robert Vecino, a California real estate developer. And I tracked down Vecino. And um, as with the urban explorers, it just, you know, the, the rabbit hole opened up from there. So when you were exploring London, were there a couple of places that have stayed with you that you've discovered? Yeah, the um, there was a there was a Cold War bunker uh, that was turned into a telephone exchange that we found under just just under Chancery Lane, uh, and it took us years to find the location of the bunker. Uh, once we got in there, we realized that there were m- miles of tunnels <laughs> that we could walk, and these sort of trunks, telecommunication trunks that we could access through small access ports, and uh, we followed some of those. Uh, deep into the city and eventually got into um the kind of central telecommunication system for for the for london it's amazing how much um (laughs) you're able to access 
uh, once you start turning your attention towards these these kinds of places. What does this underground world tell us about our above ground society? Are we are we coming down with species agoraphobia, if you like? <laughs> well, we're certainly um, you know modern life is. Uh, incredibly fragile and it, it you know it is built on the back of uh, an infrastructure that is susceptible to breakdown um, without constant human maintenance on these systems uh, we find ourselves in a, in a very bad situation and I guess that's part of the reason why I became interested in these preppers because they uh, their starting point is that they don't want to have to depend upon the state. They don't want to have to depend on these fragile infrastructures. They want to be able to become uh, self-sufficient. So uh, I'm fascinated by subterranean space. I'm fascinated by the idea that anywhere I walked in London, I could hold this kind of 3D map in my mind of tube lines and bunkers and sewers and electricity tunnels and gas pipes. Um, but, you know, I, kn- I knew that all of those things were under there and I knew how important they were to keeping the city functioning. Uh, but I'm equally fascinated by the idea that if, if just one thing goes wrong with any of those systems, we, we can find ourselves in a very grim situation. Is there a map somewhere of all those places? Have you got that map? <laughs> it's in my head. <laughs> uh, I, there, there are maps of individual systems, but I've never seen, I've never seen it all overlaid. Um, I published a book in in uh, 2016 called Subterranean London. The artist Stephen Walter actually render, uh, he drew an illustration of these these five layers underneath the city of infrastructure. Uh, and it's just an absolute, absolutely beautiful illustration. But what we did is at each chapter as it opens, um, we've sort of highlighted the layer that you're in. And so you move deeper and deeper through the city. Of course, in the last chapter, we end up inside uh, Crossrail, and the new national power grid excavations. And that was another interesting moment where I realized that it was kind of, you know, the city is almost a kind of archaeology in reversed in these places and that the newest infrastructure has to go deeper. Um, so the city just keeps, you know, we just keep boring down further and further underground. So in the book, you tour some of the sites people are building to prepare for the end times. Basically, each chapter is a visit to a different place. And many of them are in America. Why, why are Americans such eager preppers, do you think? I think that comes down to politics. You won't be surprised to hear. You know, if, you, if you look back to the Cold War, the reaction that the US government had to the existential threat of nuclear annihilation was to essentially tell people that it was their own responsibility uh, to look after themselves and their families. There was a, uh, a nuclear strategist called Herman Kahn who came up with this, this incredible concept. Um, he called it prime target fixation syndrome. And this was a, 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 a sense of dread that people harbored about being struck by a, a nuclear weapon, knowing that the Soviets had uh, nuclear weapons aimed at particular targets. <clears throat> so people that were in cities, for instance, that knew that they were going to be annihilated if there were to be a nuclear launch, they fled to the suburbs just outside the blast radius. And of course, what many of them did once they got there is they dug up their backyards and they put um, nuclear fallout shelters. I think that there was a, a, a sense of betrayal in that period, that people felt frustrated uh, that the government couldn't and wouldn't protect them. You know, there was money dedicated to. Um, 
uh, a fallout shelter survey where they found places like parking garages that could be adapted into fallout shelters. But blast shelters were not built for the population. Switzerland has got uh, space for 110% of the population, which I love. I guess it's just in case, you know, tourists are in town. But, you know, uh, you know, people see this as the state's function. The state is supposed to be able to protect us from, from uh, external threats. And the United States, I guess for the first time in history during the Cold War, fundamentally failed to do that. And so there's that you can see a marked rise in anti-government sentiment from that period. And it's only increased over time. We, we of course, have hacked away so severely at the social safety net here in the United States now that a lot of people uh, fundamentally feel that the government has no function. And so they take it upon themselves uh, to build these spaces of protection. Well, arguably, they've had a point because a lot of these preppers were expecting a pandemic some of them thought it would be genetically engineered as well. Um, I don't know. Do you think that explains why Trump uh, initially and quite a proportion of the public think COVID-19 was created in a Chinese lab? Yeah, I th- I have eerily prescient quotes in my book from people that yeah. I interviewed in 2019 that were telling me that we were overdue for a pandemic and um, that there was going to be one just around the corner. But most of them did and do believe that the threat was going to be from what they call synthetic biotech or a, 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 an engineered pandemic. Some of them yeah, do think that that this virus was created in a lab and that not necessarily that it was released intentionally, but that it escaped the lab. Um, regardless of where it came from, I guess one thing is pretty obvious. COVID has uh, revealed to us how fragile our, our society is. And it's particularly the society that we built over the, the past 30 years under neoliberal ideologies that is, that is you know, so dependent on free market and free trade, uh, international travel and supply lines. You, you know, all of those, those were COVID's pathways. We created COVID's pathways. And so if, um, if there's any sense that uh, this virus was a test run, for, for something far worse, um, it's now obvious to anyone who wants to know how effective the release of such a, um, a, a bioengineered pandemic would be. So it is something that, that worries preppers uh, just as much as artificial intelligence uh, running amok or nuclear war or an electromagnetic pulse wiping out all of our, our um, uh, fragile electrical systems. What did these guys do when the pandemic hit? Did some of them retreat to to their bunkers? They certainly did. Um, I sent messages to all of my project participants, uh, you know, asking if they were okay, if they, you know, had plans to retreat to the bunkers. And and they did. They loaded up their their cars and trailers and they took off. It was interesting that in one of the communities I, I worked at, uh, which is called the X point in South Dakota. There are about 40 families that live in this field of um, semi subterranean concrete bunkers out there. Uh, when they got to the bunker field and uh, self isolated for 14 days, they were able to emerge in their community knowing that they were absolutely virus free. I mean, there was zero possibility of them becoming infected because they had no reason to leave their community. They didn't need to go to grocery stores they had all all the supplies they needed and uh once they knew that everyone in the community 
um, uh, was not infected. They were able to kind of go about their lives as normal or as normal as it can be living in a bunker field. Right. <laughs> but I saw, I saw photos of them, you know, barbecuing on 4th of July, enjoying themselves. Um, they're, they're perfectly safe and happy and healthy there. So I guess in, in some ways their um, uh, pessimism was, was vindicated. Trump actually has a bunker, doesn't he? Under, Mar- uh, under Mar-a-Lago and his, his estate in Florida. Tell us about that. He does, yeah. But Trump Trump purchased that property um, from uh, Marjorie Merriweather Post, a breakfast cereal magnet, and uh, she had a bunker under that uh, that was built during the Cold War, like a lot of people. And when Trump inherited the, or when Trump bought the property, uh, the the bunker underneath it was in pretty bad shape. So he he invested, I think, a hundred thousand dollars in fixing up the bunker, and there were a lot of um, there was a lot of speculation, uh, particularly at the beginning of his presidency. Um, if if we remember how shaky that period of time was, he spent a lot of time at Mar-a-Lago, and the speculation is that um, he wanted to be close to his bunker, and not and and his the fact that it's his bunker, his private bunker is quite important here because of course with the job of president he's inherited bunkers he's got the bunker under the white house that he hid in the other week when protesters were at the at the at the gates of the white house uh, but he fundamentally distrusts the people that he's surrounded by he distrusts the the government that he runs um, and so he wanted to be close to his private bunker and i i guess that is uh, fundamentally an extension of of that mentality that a lot of people shared during the cold war that they they do not trust the government to take care of them they want they want to make sure that the control uh, over their destiny remains in their own hands you visited a community of preppers in tennessee who don't build bunkers but are looking forward to being self-sufficient when the end times come and they were women which is unusual because nearly all the people you talk to in the book are, who are prepping are men and you described how they cut themselves off from mainstream news. They basically just watched YouTube videos. Um, tell us about their mindset. Yeah, I stayed with a, with an incredibly charismatic woman named Heidi that had a, a very luscious Southern accent, and uh, she had a a TV in her living room. And I, you know, I, I have a kind of standard set of questions that I ask people as part of my my research methodology. And I asked her, you know, what news she watches and and uh, uh, she responded that she the tv wasn't hooked up uh, that she only used it to watch youtube videos so she had created i mean it's another kind of bunker right it's like you create this kind of uh, space where you're only receiving information from very particular sources and the sources that she was relying on um, were extremely conspiratorial um, she had me watch a video about um, uh, 5G towers uh, that she was convinced were were mind control devices. I know in the UK uh, there were similar theories about 5G actually spreading COVID, and some people set those those um, uh, towers on fire, which looked to me kind of like a pagan ritual to banish the plague. But <laughs> um, uh, but I you know I was fascinated. These women were were incredibly generous. Uh, they let me spend about a week there. And they had a store called Tennessee Readiness that sold uh, survival equipment. 
And I asked them at one point, you know, what they planned on doing with the store if if something hit. And they said that they would leave it behind as a gift for whoever came. They, they had no intention of defending it. And in fact, they were very um, critical of the idea that um, that a bunker would be uh, uh, an acceptable mode of protection. Their plan instead was to um, escape into Smoky Mountains National Park, which which was just on the back of the shop. And they had bug out bags with them that were packed with supplies so that they could uh, at any moment's notice take those bags and escape into the into the national park and inside there they had planted secret groves so they had groves of fruit trees and they were they were going and tending to these crops in the groves um so that they could live out of the national park if necessary and of course everything that they had they would just leave behind for people to to uh, rummage through and they saw that as as um a kind of altruism, right? That they would they would leave these things behind for people, and that could potentially help someone else survive. And even in America, not all the prepping is done by individuals. You mentioned that obviously the presidency comes with bunkers, and there are some vast underground complexes built by the government in the U.S. as well, in uh, not not too far from Washington D.C. in Virginia and places like that. Are there similar complexes in in Britain? Uh, there are so the this the bunker that I mentioned in Wiltshire um, is colloquially known as Burlington. It's um, an underground city that was built dur- during the Cold War. Uh, I snuck in there with the, with that crew of urban explorers in about 2010 and was astounded by the the size of the place. There are um, 97 kilometers of roads through the through the um, facility, and there are nine. Yeah. yeah, that's extraordinary, isn't it? It is extraordinary. There's there we found a um, BBC broadcasting station down there, so they can continue broadcasting after a nuclear uh, attack. We found a a library that had every document that you would need to reconstruct the UK government. Um, so maps, plans, figures, uh, maps of London, so that the city could actually be rebuilt if it was destroyed. Uh, it was a there were kitchens, uh, an underground reservoir with drinking water, and the thinking was that um, was that government officials could uh, survive down there for about three months. I, I think there was there was space for uh, a few hundred people. <laughs> What's interesting is that it's it's a very similar ideology to the United States that these these governments were built for uh, built for government officials. Uh, for elites, for people in the know, you know, I mean, I mean, it's a kind of material manifestation of the inequality that you see in Britain. You know, you, you know who's going to be saved. You know who's going to end up in that bunker. There were other bunkers around the country that were that were built in a similar way. There are also these Cold War bunkers called ROC posts, where I think people would um, you would be able to go down there with a single person or a family, and uh, the idea was that you could monitor radiation levels and kind of share that around the country in case there was a nuclear attack. And I've, I've been in a couple of those ROC posts. From what I gather, there, there are thousands of them all over the country, uh, but they were not spaces where uh, a community of ordinary citizens would be able to survive. And I, I do think that, you know, once that knowledge came to the fore, uh, particularly through investigative journalism, 
people like Duncan Campbell, who revealed the existence of these bunkered spaces. I think that knowing that actually had an, a negative impact on our collective psyche, knowing that we wouldn't be saved. We didn't have space in these bunkers. In the book, you make an explicit link between libertarian politics, the, the brand of libertarian politics that sees disaster as an opportunity for renewal, and Jacob Rees-Mogg, who we will all be familiar with. Tell us tell us a bit about that. Well, um, Jacob Rees-Mogg's father, Lord William Rees-Mogg, uh, wrote a book um, called The Sovereign Individual, which is a kind of, um, <laughs> it's, it's a great example of what uh, Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism, right? It's, it's, a, it's a book that sees crisis as an opportunity for investment. And uh, I'm sure many people will be aware that uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg um, took some of the learn, you know, some of what he learned in his father's book and bet against the pound during Brexit and made about 7 million in profits. Uh, there seems to be an ideology at work here that, again, has sort of lost faith in the state and anticipates collapse. It anticipates chaos. Um, and uh, there's an opportunity there for investment. If you know that there's going to be a collapse in currency, if you know that there's going to be shor- a shortage in supplies, then there's there's an opportunity for investment there. The, the frightening thing about this is that if you're heavily invested in collapse, uh, <laughs> then if you're in a position to power, you just might want to bring that collapse about. Uh, so that you can you can profit from it, and that's something that I kept running into again and again as I looked at these leaders who were incredibly well placed to weather disasters. Um, and of course, that that is not just um, uh, that's not limited to political leaders anymore. It's also wealthy people in Silicon Valley, for instance, who have uh, space in New Zealand, and uh, they're quite happy to make their fortune relying on limited government and free market principles here. But as soon as things go wrong, they're immediately on their private jet to New Zealand where they know the government is going to lock things down and keep them safe. They like big government at that point. That was one of the strange things about the whole stockpiling for Brexit thing for me, because, uh, you know, many of us started stockpiling basic foods and so on with the prospect for New Deal. Uh, if that was if that was going to happen, and it was the first time a lot of us had thought about prepping, but for some Brexiters, there seemed to be this kind of weird thrill about the prospect of the kind of suffering to come. Did it, what's going on psychologically there? Do you think? Well, it's difficult to know. I mean, I would say that from the people that I interviewed, I had a very real sense that they they felt alienated. They were overworked, overtired, underpaid, frustrated. They they felt that they had lost control of their lives. Um, they felt that the the government was making dangerous bets, gambling with their their very existence. Uh, that the existential threats that we all face are not something that any of us can do much about. Right? We we can't single handedly reverse climate change. Right? It it takes a consensus and it takes leadership to be able to uh, to affect change in the, in those serious threats that we face. And people are frustrated that they have no agency in these affairs. And so I guess, you know, we start to, or some people start to desire 
collapse because at least it will bring about change, something radically different. And, um, you know, the pandemic has been horrible, tragic for so many people, but there are also a lot of people who were relieved when all of their obligations sort of collapsed and they no longer had to, you know, commute two hours to work. They could work remotely. Uh, for a lot of people, it, it gave them some breathing room. Uh, I think a lot of that, a lot of that initial euphoria has, has vanished as we move into this period of kind of terrible stamina that we all have to have to get, get to the end of this thing, whatever the end looks like. But yeah, there's, there's certainly a group of people who see a crisis as an opportunity for rebirth. Don't forget that the word apocalypse uh, from the original Greek, apocalyptin means renewal. It's a chance for renewal and rebirth. It's a chance to rebuild. And when you, uh, when a culture finds itself deeply entrenched in a particular way of life, it's not surprising that people desire an apocalypse. Do you find yourself particularly affected by this? Did did, did you get infected, if you like, by the by the fear? Is there a particular end time scenario that haunts you now? Yeah. Um, What's that? in the in the mid nineteenth century? Uh, there was a, uh, a British researcher. Uh, called Carrington, who witnessed what we now call the Carrington event. It was a a coronal mass ejection, uh, a big sort of burp of plasma from the sun. And when that hit the Earth's magnetic field, it fried telegraph lines in Canada, and people as far as the Caribbean were seeing uh, the Borealis. It, it, it was an incredible event, and the I ran into some government reports after preppers told me that they were concerned about the possibility of another CME, I started reading government reports about what the impacts would be of such an event, and they, it would be absolutely catastrophic. So all of the um, electrical transformers that keep the grid up would essentially be fried. And of course, we've now outsourced <laughs> the creation of these things like everything else, so we don't know how to build them anymore. Um, and if we ended up in a in a situation where we lost all of our electricity and uh, the transformers are being produced in another place and, and that country decides that geopolitically it's quite useful to keep everyone in the dark ages, uh, then we could be in a very serious situation. Those transformers also take years to build. So we some investment is being made in um, hardening the architecture around that electrical infrastructure. But um, unfortunately, those events are actually pretty regular. Uh, they, they tend to happen about every 150 years. And so we're, we're now creeping up on, we're, we're probably overdue for a CME. And you know, when it happened the last time, we did not have uh, the kind of you know, technologically dependent civilization that we have now. You know, our during the pandemic, the technology is a thing that has has kept us going. And so, the question for me is, what happens if we didn't have technology anymore? Where would that leave us? Oh God, do you have a grab bag? Yeah, I do. <laughs> you know, I I actually have gone farther than that. I um, you have a bunker as well, don't you? You got to. <laughs> I have a I have a bunker. I have space in. Um, a bunker complex, but getting to it would be extremely difficult. Uh, and I realized at the beginning of the pandemic that I wouldn't be willing to leave my family behind. You know, I've been 
taking care of elderly family members, doing their grocery shopping for them and wiping everything down. And, and so far, knock on wood, have successfully um, kept everyone from getting sick. Uh, but there's just no way that my partner and I would, would pack up our guinea pigs and take off to the bunker and just, you know, kiss everyone else goodbye. And there's not space in that bunker for everyone else. Um, so what we ended up doing instead is we, we purchased a, a remote property in the mountains and we've got a quarter acre. It's within, um, it's within driving distance of all of my family members. They can be here in an hour or so. And we are slowly but surely stocking it up with with food and tools and medical supplies. Um, I, I work in Dublin and so I'm, you know, I, I, I can't be here all the time, but it does give me some peace of mind knowing that I have a place to retreat to and that, uh, my home essentially is a bunker. One of the, one of the, one of the best quotes in the book or the, one of the most poignant for me was, um, a prepper in Vermont who told me that, uh, Everyone needed to stop fantasizing about having some kind of, you know, space to escape to. They needed to bloom where they were planted. So that's my that's my philosophy now. Bloom where you're planted. That's sobering. Bradley, thanks so much for joining us. It was an absolute pleasure. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily. And if you want to help us keep podcasting, you could back us on Patreon, the crowdfunding platform. You'll get every episode at free and night before general release, if we can get it finished in time. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out the details. We'll see you tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ross Taylor and produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold, and audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.